0: Everyone, welcome to Aerospace Live. My name is Bob Roberts. I'm an Aerospace Education Officer with the United States Air Force Auxiliary, Civil Air Patrol. Our channel is devoted to helping you to engage with the aviation and space community, as well as helping you with virtual hands-ons lessons and pilot knowledge instruction. Our guest for this week has been flying since the age of 14. He's a graduate of the aviation science from Western Michigan University uh, as a CFI, and he's had a career as well in the cargo industry as a freight dog. Um, now, Alex has two books that he has written. His first book was called hauling checks and his second book was called CFI exclamation mark, the CFI book. Um, I do recommend these books. They are both really funny ways of looking at aviation. And uh, I have, we'll have the links to these books down in the show notes and I hope you check them out. So now let's go ahead and let's welcome Alex. Alex, how you doing?
1: Good. How you doing?
0: Man, I can't complain. Did you have a good Thanksgiving?
1: Yeah, yeah, it did.
0: How about here? I fell asleep like everybody else from that turkey comatose. I think they call it, right? <laughs> <So>. Yeah. <laughs> um, to, you know, thankfully not. Thankfully, the eggnog has not started flowing yet. So, but other than that, no damage was done. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so Alex, we're gonna jump right into it, because um, I know you're a busy guy, but um, you know, you started flying at a pretty early age of 14. So, so, what made you decide to go into flying at such an early age?
1: Uh, my, my grandpa was a fighter pilot in World War II. For, uh, he was in the Polish RAF, uh, part of the British Royal Air Force. So uh, my uncle was also a pilot briefly. Uh, he became a CFI, but didn't really follow through with it further than that. Um, as he said, he had kids at that point, and he needed a job he can actually support a family with. And, you know, being a CFI wasn't going to do it. So um, I had it in the family, so it was kind of something I was wanted to do. Uh, I started when I was young. I went to uh, Culver Military Academy in Indiana, and that's where I learned to fly there. Soloed, uh, I think, two days after my 16th birthday, and uh, got my private shortly after that. Went to met Western Michigan, as you, as you said, and then became a CFI after that, and then flew freight.
0: So so now, so uh, now, Western Michigan. So the aviation science degree is that an is that a flying degree or is that more of like um, a technical degree? Yeah, it's
1: a it's a flying degree.
0: Okay, yeah. So that was a Part One Forty One school then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was. So now, what made you decide to go Part One Forty One? So a lot of a lot of the the folks that will listen to this, um, they're kind of in that younger age group, right? So we have kind of our our younger group between the ages of 14 and 18. And then everybody else is usually between the ages of 26 and 102. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, a lot of our younger folks, they have that question, right? Part 61 versus part 141. Uh, you know, you're not uh, somebody who runs a school or anything <laughs> like that, and it's been a little while for you. But um, was there <laughs> any thought in your mind about um, part 61 versus 141? And why well, you went can to a school? it
1: definitely be a cheaper way to get you to the same spot, really. Um, you know, when I did it, I wanted to have a college degree. And at that time, it seemed like it was going to be important to have that. Uh, I think at one time, the airlines really wanted you to have a college degree. But it seems like these days, it's not really that important anymore. And, you know, I had co-workers um, that I flew with when I flew freight that didn't, and they went that route, um, you know, just getting the instruction, the certificates, not going through college. And really. I don't I don't I think their careers could take the same path it, it doesn't seem to make much difference. So, yeah, I, ca- I can't really discourage anybody from going that route.
0: Yeah, going the route the 141 route.
1: Yeah, going going either way really. <laughs> I think I think it's I think it's up to you what you what you want to do and if getting a college degree is important, maybe then you want to go the 141 route, but um if that's not as important then going part 61 um Would probably be just fine.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah. So first folks that, um, are listening to this and they don't know. So part, part, um, well, you, you've got it. Uh, you're my guest. Um, can you do a quick explanation of part 61 versus one forty-one? What that actually means? If not, I can do it. (laughs) It's been
1: been a while now, so I don't know know, how good my explanation is going to be. Um, Yeah. You might want to explain
0: that one. Yeah, no worries. So yeah. So part 61 is more like if you drive to your local airport and you see a sign on the side of the road that says, learn to fly here. Um, They operate under a specific set of guidelines from the FAA. They tend to be more um, general aviation oriented. Um, There's not really, there may be some folks that are looking at airlines and career in aviation, but most of the folks are going to be people like you, you know, or not me, like no, not you, because you actually went on. I mean, more people um, that are just more interested in, you know, just taking the family to Disney World on the weekends and uh, things of that nature. They're not looking to get into a big 737 later in their life, uh, as opposed to a part 141 school. Um, they have, they are more of a professional school. So, um, like you went to Western Michigan University, uh, folks are probably used to hearing about Emory Riddle. Um, and there's, um, a lot of other schools that are part 141s and a lot in sc- that you can get your college degree. Plus, uh, you can get your pilot's license, usually your, your instrument rating, your commercial, um, and then they'll get you your CFI typically. Um, and then you can usually jump right into a CFI position and try to start building up those hours, um, for your airline gig. So, um, now did you get your CFI at Western Michigan University?
1: No, I went to, um. What's it called? ATP Mm -hmm. in Sacramento, California. Did like the accelerated course. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I got up to through commercial at Western, okay, and then uh, got all the uh, CFI certificates through ATP afterwards.
0: Okay, that was your goal at the time to fly um, commercial to get into the big iron, or
1: yeah, yeah, it was that. That was always the ultimate goal, Um, and yeah, I I kind of changed my mind on that when I found out. More so what it was really like in the regionals and, and everything like that. And um, went the direction of Cargo, and I was really enjoying that. And probably would have stuck with Cargo had the recession not happened when it happened. Right. And other things in my life that were happening at the time that I decided to kind of change paths.
0: Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, Cargo, yeah, it seems like um, it seems like Cargo seems to be like the, a stepping stone. It almost seems like there is... Um a choice. You know, some folks will go to CFI, they'll build up to say 500 hours, give or take. Um, that seems <laughs> to be a good number of hours. Um, and then you know start applying to some of the, the, the cargo positions. Um, now when you flew cargo, um, was that what you saw as well? Was that, you know, about that, that 500 ish hours or, or, were people needing really more hours than that?
1: Uh, yeah. So at the time, I got hired with probably just a little over a thousand hours, uh, at Airnet, which is who, who I flew for and, uh, probably right around 1100. And then, so I had to do a SIC program till I got to about 1500 hours, I think it was. And then that, then they turned you loose after that point, yeah. um, which I think was pretty close to what the regionals were hiring at the time. And I think that that's changed somewhat over the years. So I don't know if those numbers are our current, but you know, with cargo, we were operating under part 135, um, you know, which is a little different than part 121, as far as the uh, minimum requirements and everything mm-hmm. required I, for.
0: Now you mentioned earlier, uh, I want to go and kind of go back to it. So uh, you mentioned, you know, there was kind of that, that diversion paths, right? So in one way you could go cargo, um, you know, you could go CFI for a while, right? Build up hours there. Uh, Mm -hmm. You can go cargo and then the other way you can go regional, right? Once you had enough hours and and you had decided that, um, you know, looking at regional really wasn't the way for you to go. Um, and so you decided to go to cargo Uh, for a lot of the listeners, um, that are, you know, kind of in that same ballpark as you were back then. Um, Mm -hmm. what kind of led you to cargo over, uh, being a regional pilot?
1: The pay at the time, um, the pay at the regionals was significantly lower than it was in cargo at the time at least at least the starting pay was yeah so that was the main decision
0: now were you thinking about at the time um possibly you going jumping from cargo over to regionals or were you going to try or at the time were you thinking you were just going to stay in cargo and work your way up inside cargo uh,
1: yeah i think at that point I, I wasn't really sure i think i was still kind of i was open to kind of anything yeah or either going to like a fractional or something like that too i was I was pretty much open to whatever opportunity came. I wasn't really zeroed in on, on one specific path. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Now cargo, they tend to operate more out of a single base, right? So as opposed to a regional, which may have you hopping around from city to city and sleeping in lounges, um, you know, nonstop, was, was is that the, was that the case with you? When you were flying cargo, were you kind of flying? Well, we out of the we same did place? it.
1: We had multiple bases. Our main hub was in Columbus, Ohio, but we had multiple bases with uh, not as many pilots in each base, but there was actually probably 30 bases or so throughout the country. But some of them maybe only had one person base there, two people, you know, in one base. Some had quite a a few more than that. Um, So I guess not as many big hubs. We just really had one hub, which was Columbus. The rest of the bases were, you know, just a couple pilots here, a couple pilots there scattered Mm -hmm. around
0: now i want to go into your books so um now, now i, I kind of alex and i were talking a little bit before we started the uh, the recording of the stream um now his first book was hauling checks um i actually i read these in backwards order so i ended up reading cfi the book first um and then hauling checks but you can do these books do stand apart from each other so if you're going to uh just buy one you can buy either one um you know you don't have to read one to understand the other one which is nice um I will say, so I started off a CFI and, and I'll, I'll tell the, the listeners. I, you scared the hell out of me. So, so <laughs> I, I didn't catch on at the beginning. That is where it says right here, a satirical look. <laughs> <at> aviation <laughs> yeah. comedy. I thought he was relaying real stories and he's talking about the engine being on fire and, <laughs> and yeah. air traffic control being like, well, all right, well, we're not going to worry about it if you're not worried about it. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, so I wanted to ask you, um, you know, a lot of pilots have hangar talks, right? So they have their hangar stories, right? So their buddy will have a, a big story about something that happened in aviation. As pilots, we all have our stories. All right. And then the pilot next to you always seems to have to one up them. Um, so where did these stories come from? Are you just a delusional individual who just comes up with this stuff on his own? Or
1: like, no, I'm really not as good at making stuff up as it might seem i mean they they really are all based somewhat on a true story uh, you know, a lot of them are pieces of things that are kind of thrown together into one event which makes that event seem crazier than it probably was in real life yeah. you know but the individual elements of it were true Um, some of them are things that actually happened to me. Some of them are things that happened to other pilots that I knew. Uh, some are just stories that I heard, you know, I heard the CFI out here, you know, had this happen to him thing. And I did, I exaggerated, um, you know, quite a bit in spots and dramatized things in quite a bit in spots, but they, they really are all, you know, based loosely based on, on factual stories.
0: I I don't know if I find that funny or if I find that horrifying.
1: (laughs) It's, it's, it's both, it's, it's not, I guess it's uh, a lot of it wouldn't be funny. The true stories aren't funny. They're, they are more horrifying, but the goal was to put it in a, you know, present them in a funny way, um, which makes it a little less scary and makes it kind of, you know, brings the point across that sometimes these things happen out there um and if you can kind of laugh your way through it it's not quite as scary as it would be if they were just you know presented maybe exactly the way that happened and things like that
0: yeah so. i know um the the one story or it was a collection of stories um and i have to know if this is based off of a real person and if that person ever listens to this and they find out who they are we have, we have, we both apologize to them, but you had a gentleman and, and, and honestly folks if you like aviation i recommend you get this book cuz uh, especially if you're a CFI um you know, because there's one gentleman in here that's referenced in the book. His name is George. So is, mm-hmm. is George based off of a real person?
1: Yeah, George is 100% a real person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and George wasn't his real name. But um, George was based off of a student when I started instructing at a flight school that that was the first student I was given. And I was basically told that this guy's flown with every other instructor. Nobody else can seem to do anything with him. Here's your turn to give it a try. Yeah, and and that was my first day was was going with this guy. And um, yeah, a lot of a lot of what's in there uh, is is pretty true about him. I mean, he was uh, he was a nice guy. I hate to talk bad about him. He was a nice guy. Mm-hmm. He he really loved aviation. He really wanted to be a pilot, but I don't think he was all, all quite there and you know maybe not capable of of really pulling it off but yeah he, he kept trying though and I flew with him for a little while and then another instructor got hired behind me and he got passed on to that instructor and it kept going for a while until um you know a lot of a lot of instructors brought it up of uh, the point of should we really be flying with this guy should we really um be allowing this co- to continue you know. And um, the owner of the flight school wanted it to continue because it it was a it's customer. Revenue.
0: Yeah, it's revenue. So,
1: so revenue. So, and the guy wanted to do it, and um, nothing nothing really ever happened with him. Maybe quite as dangerous as some of the things I depict in the book. Yeah. Um, I you know I embellished it somewhat, but mo- a lot of the stuff I put in there, you know, him being lost flying right over the top of the airport <laughs> saying, I don't see it yet. You know, yeah. as I'm looking down out the window so, <laughs> as, as we pass right over the top of it, that's a hundred percent true. You know, um, a lot of stuff like that. So, um, he never did really solo though. And I, I don't want to spoil anything from the
0: book. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I they, want, I want folks to they, read the book to get it. Yeah.
1: Say, t- say too much about that, but yeah, you know, in real life, the guy never did solo. He eventually did give up on it.
0: Uh, well, uh, you know, I think what we should do. Um, Anybody's listening to this, everybody send me like two dollars. We're gonna go send George an iPad with Four Flight on it. So, <laughs> this way, <laughs> and yeah. this way, he can he can figure out where he's going. Um, yeah. yeah, no, but I, I really did enjoy that story about uh, about George uh, from the book. And and honestly, that story alone is worth this book. Um, I really did enjoy that. And, um, you know, and then going to your, your, your second book, which no, it's actually your first book, second book I read, but your first book yeah, first being book. hauling checks. Um, you know, I, I, I was scared about, um, the maintenance and, and I have heard that from other pilots. I'm obviously I'm friends with a lot of pilots. I talked to a lot of pilots. Um, and so they say that, uh, you know, when you get onto the airlines, right, they make everything shiny and polished. And, and mm-hmm. when you're, when you're, when you're flying cargo, Things gotta get from point A to point B. (laughs) It doesn't have to look pretty. Um, we had uh Kerry mccullough on last week. I don't know if you know who Kerry is. Um he's a pilot and that um oh shoot uh Discovery, uh, I think the channel is. Um Dangerous Flights. He's one Mm -hmm. of the one of the uh ferry pilots from that show. He was on last week. Um yeah, it was one of the things that him and I were talking about. He was talking about the condition of some of these airplanes. Uh, we're pretty, we're pretty bad. You know, you duct tape and gu- bubble gum them together. So did mm-hmm. you find, did you find that as well? I know you might um, be a little more hesitant to say, you know, if people are listening, but um, did you have, how was how was the, the airplanes? Were they just, uh, some people say like they're really well maintained. They're just not pretty, <laughs> um, but the airplane yeah. itself is good.
1: You know, I flew for AirNet and AirNet was probably the best of the chat mm-hmm. Um So The planes we flew, they weren't new. They weren't pretty at all. Um, They looked pretty, you know, my mom saw the inside of one of the planes once and was like, oh my God, I can't believe you're flying this thing. (laughs) But we did have really good maintenance. And they, they, you know, things broke on a regular basis. They were were 40-year-old airplanes, Mm -hmm. and they were used pretty heavily. So things broke, but maintenance always took it seriously and got stuff fixed when it did break. So... You know, we had pretty good faith in what we were flying, but we worked with a lot of other check haulers like on on routes. We, um, you know, our company um, gave some routes out to other companies that we'd meet up with pilots from other companies here and there. Smaller companies. And I'm not going to mention any of the names of those companies, even though I think at this point all of them are out of business. But some of those people that you felt so sorry for them for what they were flying and the lack of maintenance that they got. You know, I talk. I would meet up with people on the routes that like had stuff that was broken for like a month and they couldn't get it fixed. And they were basically being told, if you want this fixed, you need to ferry the plane halfway across the country on your day off. And then then we'll fix it for you. And then you can ferry it back, you know, on your That was on Saturday, and then you can ferry it back on Sunday. If you want to sacrifice your weekend, we'll get your plane fixed for you. But if you're not willing to sacrifice your weekend, then just live with what you got, basically. And, you know, a lot of them were – I met up with one guy on a regular basis. He was based somewhere other than where his family lived. He used the weekend – that was his two days a week to go see his wife and kids. He didn't want to give that up to go – you know, fly the plane somewhere to get it fixed. So he got used to just living with stuff. You know, that got crazier and crazier over time. And the stuff he told me about, like, I mean, he was flying an MU two, you know, out of the left seat, IFR using the instruments out of the right seat for months. Yeah, you know, I mean, that stuff was was really happening out there. And that didn't personally happen to me, but mm-hmm. I met people that that happened to.
0: Yeah, so. I, I can't. Uh, I can't say who this was, obviously, because in case the FAA ever listens to this, but uh, yeah, there was a guy that um, his ILS didn't work at all in the airplane, mm-hmm. and it didn't work for like four months, and um, he flew every approach using four flight. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, I don't even want to hear about that. I was like, <laughs> I, was, I was like, I'm like, did you at least have a standby battery, you know, in case your battery and your iPad failed? Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that was the story he told me. Was you know um, yeah. very similar to what you said, and that's crazy, right? That's that, again that shows you the difference between the oversight you know the FAA will do on a civilian airplane uh, that's flying passengers versus maybe cargo. So yeah, um, yeah,
1: there there definitely seemed to be very little oversight in it, and it, it seemed like um, you know it was really up to the individual company on what they wanted their reputation to be as far yeah. as um, how they did that, and there were some that cared and there were some that didn't care.
0: Now, now, um, for the folks that don't know, and I read the book, so I know, but um, so what is check hauling? What what, what is that? What is that?
1: So, you know, it doesn't exist anymore. As far as I've heard, 2015 was the last time any checks were flown. But prior to that, um, if you wrote a check for your mortgage or your car payment and it was deposited at the bank that, you know, whoever you sent it to, that bank need to return the check to your bank before they actually get the money so um they would fly the checks back overnight if the deposits came in they would get cash um when the bank closed at 5 p.m they'd load them all up take them to the airport fly them overnight so that they'd be at the bank that the money was coming from by 9 a.m the next morning
0: wow so that is actually and
1: then they would set the money
0: Yeah, so that is totally different than the way the world seems to work now with everything digital.
1: Yeah, I mean, now you can cash a check on your cell phone without it ever being sent anywhere. But yeah, I mean, just, you know, I I started doing it in 2005. And at that point, that was still the way it was was completely done. And some of the checks that we flew were like extremely high value. I mean, pretty much all the time, what we had on board was millions worth at least, you know, of total checks added up. Some of them, you know, most of them maybe be small values, but some that we had were really high value stuff. And they were not it was not even like get it there by the next morning. It was like, how many minutes is it going to take to move this check from one bank to another wow. check or from one bank to another bank? Because the time when it was in between was like uh, called float time. And in the float time, nobody was getting interest on that check. So when one bank had the money the end, it was being transferred to another bank. They wanted to make that transfer happen as fast as possible. So the bank receiving the money was paying for the flight so that they could get it to themselves quickly. And wow. that's, that's the way it worked for, for years and years. And I was there, you know, I started in 2005. The year I started was uh, the year that Check 21 was pr- uh, passed, which started uh, or legalized electronic check transfer And that was right at the point when it started to kind of go away. And I was there from basically it being, you know, full blown, all checks were flown to by the time I left in 2012, there was hardly anything left at that point We just kind of saw the business dwindle away over those seven years.
0: So, so you guys were the original Amazon prime delivery company. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we,
1: we actually did deliver for Amazon for a while too. That was that was one of the things when the checks were going away. The company was trying to um, bring in other types of business to uh, replace the checks and flying for Amazon was one of the things that we did for a short period of time, but it it didn't really work out with them for for other reasons. but mm-hmm.
0: Yes, yeah, so yeah. that was so that was pretty interesting. some of the stories here. So again, for the folks that are, are watching, The YouTube video. um, That's this book here, the hauling checks. um, And for those of you that are uh, listening on the podcast, um, it is the book is called Hauling Checks by Alex Stone. And again, the other book is called uh, CFI, the book by Alex Stone. Um, Now, Alex, what got you interested in writing these books?
1: Well, you know, I wrote hauling checks first. I was still working at Airnet at the time, and I was like out to dinner with my uh, it
0: was my girlfriend at the
1: time, but my wife now telling her stories about things that I had flown through and everything. And, uh, she said, you should write a book about this. And so I went home that night and started writing the book and I wrote it in three weeks. Um, you know, once I started, I I kind of became obsessed with, with writing it and didn't stop writing until I finished it. Um, at the time I was reading a lot because, You know, when you're when you're flying for an airline, there's a lot of downtime sitting at airports and hotels, everything like that. I had a lot of time to read, so you know, I I was kind of interested in the idea of writing a book because of that.
0: Now, this was now these were the first books you wrote. Um, So, if if, if anybody's out there now, most of the people listening to uh, to this are are going to be people interested in aviation. But um, if somebody was out there and they wanted to write a book. Um, how did you go about get started? I mean, did you just write the book and then you, you had to look for a publisher? Like how, how did that whole process work for you?
1: Yeah, I, I just wrote the book. And when I wrote it, um, you know, I honestly thought that no one was ever going to read it because I wasn't a writer. I still sometimes don't think of myself as an author because I, I don't really have a background in that. You know, I went to school to be a pilot. I don't think I did that good in English class in high school. When I told my family that I wrote, first wrote a book, they were like, shocked by it, kind of surprised. Uh, I think it was the last thing they expected me to do. Um, but I, I just wrote it um, just because I thought I, I had something good to say. And I got it done. And I had, you know, a few people close to me, like my sister, my wife, read it. And they're telling me, this is great. you got to do something with this. So I self-published it. And honestly, even when I did it, I just thought, like, it's just going to be cool to have this book in my hand that I wrote and say I wrote this book I didn't think anybody was going to buy it then I put it on sale on Amazon and I posted it in a few aviation forums and it started selling right away so I mean I think in the first month it sold 100 copies which I mean most books don't sell 50 copies I think like 95% 95% of books that are published never sell more than 50 copies. So right off the bat, it was like, wow, people are actually reading it. So um, I, I actually I went back almost right away and improved it because I felt like uh, I, can, I can do better than what I had and went back and kept working on it. And, um, and actually, within a couple months after, republished it again, uh, basically an improved version of what I had initially published. And uh, yeah, that was it. And I I started writing CFI right afterwards. And um, I only got a little ways into writing it, though. I was only maybe had a couple chapters. um, I had maybe 10 pages of notes and ideas for it. And then kind of got sidetracked on something else and put it aside. And it just kind of, you know, sat on the shelf for about 10 years. And uh, in 2018, I was approached by a director in Hollywood about uh, buying the movie rights for holding checks. And that ended up falling through that. It actually did happen twice. Um, I had some interest in that, but both times it fell through. Um, but I hadn't read the book and set holding checks in several years at the time when, you know, he, um, that guy um, contacted me about that. So I, I read it again and was like, wow, you know, this is really good. And then I was like, Hey, you know, I started that other book. I never really finished it. I need to pull that up and see what I had. And I went back and read what I had and thought, wow, this is, you know, this is really good too. I've got to finish this and started working on it right away then. And, and finished writing CFI. So basically finished writing it 10 years after I started writing it. And, um, and then published it, um, I think, uh, January, 2019.
0: So. so if, if you ever do get the movie going for hauling checks, can you do me a favor? Can you, can I be, there's a character you have in here called the co can, yeah. can you put, I'm six foot eight, almost 300 pounds. And so uh, I, I think I would look fantastic on the big screen. Sure, You can be the co can yeah. I be the co can you put, can you give my name?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I, I would do I a great job with that character. I have this hope that one day, uh, you know, one of those two books or both are going to fall in the right hands with somebody who can actually make it happen. I think the last guy that had it, he was a director, and he loved it. He really wanted to do it. He had some serious connections with um, a producer for funding for it, but um, he he made another movie that he was working on at the time when he first contacted me, and it ended up being a total flop. Mm-hmm. And I think that he, he lost his opportunity to do anything else after that.
0: Yeah, so I guess if, George Lucas, if you're listening to this, we know that you're not... <laughs> heavily involved with Star Wars we don't think you're on the set of Mandalorian every day so if you're you're looking for a new hobby to uh, go with American graffiti you can do a hauling checks uh, and then you can make me the co (laughs) and then we'll get get alex on set as uh as the principal writer and uh production designer so
1: i I will say since you asked about george and and you're talking about the co the co is not a real character oh i'm so
0: disappointed but
1: and he he didn't exist in real life as he does in the book but pieces of the co did come from other people that I, i i kind of pieced together a lot of things to to make the co's character but I think if anybody reads that and thinks the co was real that that would be probably the most terrifying thing <laughs> in,
0: in both of those every time i hear an airplane above my head i'm gonna be looking up going oh my gosh is that airplane <laughs> being flown by the co <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so i know when you were talking i didn't even notice this um originally but um uh so yeah so this so these books are actually produced by amazon so so you don't have to make a, some big deal with a big publishing company and order ten thousand books. You can.
1: No, you you really don't anymore. Cool. Um, self publishing is actually a real thing, and there's actually a lot of uh, real big authors that are self published now. And you know the thing with it is, if you make a deal with a big publisher, you're signing away most of the rights to that book when you mm-hmm. do it, and what you actually get per copy sold. Is pretty little. It's pennies, and what with self-publishing, what I get is a lot more. Mm. And you retain a hundred percent of the rights to it. And uh, you know, at this point, brick-and-mortar bookstores are kind of a thing of the past. I think you know, twenty years ago, self-publishing probably wouldn't have gotten many people to read your book, right. and it it was really difficult, um, you, you know, to get. This book at a brick-and-mortar store. And I, I did look into that when I first published hauling checks, um, because at that time there were still some out there, but there's less and less now. Um, but ultimately, I, I kind of just gave up on doing it because it was too much trouble, and online book sales are where it's at now. And you can, you can basically get it anywhere you want, self-publishing. So, um, you know, I, I sell more copies for Kindle than anything else and audiobooks too. So it's really the digital formats are the biggest now, even over paperbacks.
0: Yeah. The cool so, thing too yeah. about the self-publishing is, um, you know, when you're, when you're going, and I don't know anything about this business really, but just from my, you know, just from talking with authors like yourself and some, even some of the, uh, some of the lower, the, you know, beginner authors and some of the people that are more established, um, some people that have had, you know, the bigger book deals with the Barnes and Nobles and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. they, they say the same thing you say. And, um, and, you know, and a lot of them wish that they had the self-publishing back then, um, mm-hmm. you know, because what happens is because the the publishers are taking a risk, right? To, to be able mm-hmm. to say, okay, you know, is this book going to sell for $20 a piece or is it going to be in the bargain bin, you know, for $5 a piece, you know, within a month? Um, and they don't know. And if you're a newbie, um, you know, everything I tell, I tell my folks that work with me all the time, you, you got to be willing to be bad before you're good right? So mm-hmm. you're never good at something day one. Right. Um, yeah. and so it, there, if you, the self publishing, it allows you to build your fan base. Right. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know who you, we've never talked before. I've never met you before. Um, I just came across your book on Amazon. I was searching for different aviation books and I saw your book I said, ah, that looks interesting. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and over time that'll snowball, you know, so you do yeah, that it, and it then does,
1: it does snowball and it, it really has snowballed far bigger than I ever imagined it would. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, both books have really been, you know, way more successful than I ever imagined. I mean, like I said earlier, when I first wrote "Hauling Checks, I really never thought anybody was going to read it. Mm-hmm. And even when I first put it on sale, I thought, well, yeah, maybe I'll get lucky and a few copies will sell. But I mean, they've, they've both been really successful. And, um, since I released the second book CFI, it's picked up sales, uh, to where hauling checks has actually sold more in like the last year than it did in the 10 years prior. Mm -hmm. Um, because when you add another book on it, it really increases your visibility and, and, um, CFI became real popular right off the bat and it increased, you know, um, The sales for hauling checks and they've kind of both carried each other. Um, It's done well, so.
0: Yeah, that's what happened with me too. I actually, like I said, I found your CFI book first, um, Mm -hmm. and then because of this book, um, I went ahead and I bought this book. So just like you said, um, you know, the one can lead to the other. So. Yeah, Um, I
1: think uh, you know hauling checks. It's kind of uh, especially now since it's it's a dead industry. It's mm -hmm. it's a little more of an obscure um, sector of the aviation industry that. Probably not many people at this point even realize that it, it used to exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but CFI, anybody, everybody that's a pilot has been involved in fi- flight instruction, either as a student or as a CFI themselves. So um, I think it's captured more eyes than hauling checks did. Yeah.
0: Now, OK, so one question before we wrap up Um so you know you you go into your CFI book and you talk about all these different students. Um, so now, you know you had your initial pilot's license at one point. Your private pilot. Now you you you, you, you yeah learn how to speak English, Bob. <laughs> I'm going, did you? <laughs> um, somebody probably just thinks I had a stroke on air. So <laughs> did uh, did you get your private pilots at Western Michigan or did you have it before you went to Western Michigan? Uh, I
1: I got the private at Western. At Western. Yeah. I had soloed before, but I got my private at Western.
0: Yeah. Okay. So your um, so your CFI either you know before when you got your solo, I imagine in a part sixty one, or your um, you know when you went to um uh, Western Michigan uh for your part one forty one. So now if though if your CFIs were gonna write a book about you, right, mm-hmm. and they were they weren't gonna call you Alex Stone because they didn't want to embarrass you in real life, they were gonna call you Timmy, and so uh-huh. if they had a if they had a character named Timmy. Would would they have any good stories? What what would be a good story that uh, they would have about Timmy? Uh, anything you, know, you did to scare them? You know, I
1: know I know I had some moments for sure. I don't I don't know if they'd have anything as good as George though. But <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely had some moments as as a student. I think especially uh, first starting IFR training. You know, I I bet you can remember what that was like the oh, first yeah. time you put the hood on and were <laughs> all over the place, which um, you know that that's in the book there. Um, and, uh, I think we've all had some bad landings in our day, but okay. I don't, I don't know that I could think of a, uh, you know, a, a specific one so long ago now,
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah.
1: I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure they come up with one. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Anyway, Get, you
1: know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not better than everybody else. <laughs> but, uh,
0: Get them a drink. They'll, they'll talk about it to me. And-
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think uh, with the people I wrote about in my book, you know, and I put this in the introduction of the book, most of the students I had when I was an instructor were great students that, you know, I love flying with, but there were bad ones. And when I wrote the book, it's, it's for entertainment really more than anything else. And writing about, oh, this student did great. That's, that's not real, you know, a very interesting book. No, no. R- picking, picking out the bad ones and writing about that is a little more entertaining. So, um, you know, I, I kind of, the book is really about like the 1% of mm. the bad ones that are out there and,
0: um, now, so, that. So, so, for, so the listeners that, um, are here that are thinking about getting their CFI, um, and then maybe we can wrap up with this. So for the folks that are that already have their private pilot's license and uh, maybe they're going to get their commercial and they have thoughts of, uh, you know, being a weekend warrior style CFI, right? Not not a professional mm-hmm. looking to build hours for the airlines. Um, mm-hmm. What would be your what would be your um, your recommendations? Like, what words of wisdom would you have for those folks that that are looking to be a CFI?
1: Um, keep your hands close to the controls. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe, uh, uh, I, are you saying as far as like schooling or what type of, um,
0: yeah, just after all your experience as being a CFI with the different, um, students you've had, you know, is there something that you wish that somebody had told you about before you became a CFI and started working with students that, um, uh, maybe in retrospect, you know, now, you know, and maybe you'd like to share.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, It, you know, it, it requires a lot of patience. Um, it it, re, it requires a lot of patience, and it requires a lot more teaching skills than I think you realize, maybe, because prior to going into it, you um, you're you're learning to be a pilot yourself, on everything all the way up to the point of getting your CFI. And really, the getting the CRS, CFI certificate it doesn't take that long, and it's just a small portion of what you do as a whole leading up to that point. And, um, you know, it, it requires a different skill than just being a pilot requires. And there's maybe not enough of that in the training prior to that on how to teach somebody, you know? Um, so maybe focusing more on that area prior to doing it would be something that, um, I would recommend that I think I had to learn a lot of that myself on the job as I was doing it. You know, I know how to do this, but how do I show somebody else how to do this?
0: Yeah. And transitioning from the left seat to the right seat probably is a little challenging in the beginning too. It's a different yeah. dynamic. Um, All right. Very good. Well, Alex, I think we'll wrap it up there. Um, and I wanted to thank you again. Congratulations on the new book, CFI the book. And I, um, do you have any plans on writing anymore or? Did you enjoy the process? I, yeah, I,
1: I do. I actually, you know, I, I started on the third book, but it's it's not real far along, and I've got young kids now, so <laughs> I don't I don't have a lot of time right now to to write. But one day I will finish it. But it's it's not an aviation related book, so it's it's it has to do with something else. I think I kind of covered what I had to cover with in aviation in those two books. So um, yeah, the the next one's going to be about something else, probably. But it'll, someday, maybe in another 10 years. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> well, I do know that um, for the folks that are listening and aren't watching, uh, behind Alex, he has um, a, a big top tent. Um and so now, now that you say you have children I feel better about the fact that uh yeah. your wife hasn't made you sleep in the big Todd tent you know cuz you did something bad yes, or something yes, <laughs> so.
1: the IKEA tent back there yeah
0: <laughs> so all right well Alex thanks so much for your time um we really appreciate it I wish you good luck in uh in these two books um I again I really did enjoy reading these books um they are easy reads these are not Stephen King novels that are going to take you a 100 hours to enjoy um, and so, uh, you, you said you have an audio book too. I didn't notice the audio book.
1: Yeah, there, there's an audio book version of both of them. And, uh, the guy that narrated them, he did an awesome job. He did CFI first, and then he did uh, hauling checks a few months after afterwards. And he did such a great job with the characters. And, um, you know, even if you read the book, even to me, listening to the audio book is almost like a new experience. Even though I wrote it, because he did such a good job bringing the characters to life, yeah. So I recommend him.
0: All right. Well, I know, yep. like like most people, I think I have eight credits out there that I haven't used because. So I have like a library of audio books that I haven't even listened to yet. So I keep, but I keep getting a new credit every month. So I think yeah. I will actually go out and, um, especially this one here, because I want to see how a good audio book of uh, George is going to come across. Yeah, um, I think
1: you'll you'll like it. Yeah, you'll enjoy it.
0: <laughs> okay. Very good. Well, Alex, I think we are going to wrap up there and um, I want to thank you for all your time and um, anything else before we go?
1: I think that's it. Thanks a lot for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity and um, yeah, hopefully um, people out there uh, learned a little bit from it and yeah, thanks a lot.
0: All right. Thanks so much, Alex. We'll talk to you later then. Have a good day. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Okay, and that was our time with uh, Alex Stone, again, the author of CFI, the book, and his older book, uh, which I still highly recommend, Hauling Checks. Um, feel free to go grab those, and actually, be honest with you, I have not listened to the audiobook. book. Um, I am actually going to uh, grab CFI, the audiobook book, um, because he has some incredible characters in this one here, um, and I really wanna see how they're gonna be brought to life. Um, I'm really, really interested in that. Um, all right, so with that i think we're going to wrap it up uh one quick thing if you wanted to reach out to us on twitter uh, we have aerospace underscore live you can reach me there our youtube channel is kind of where most of our material lives if you're listening to us on podcasts, and that's a youtube.com slash my name so youtube.com slash robert roberts and then on podcast you can find us at aerospace dash live so twitter it's underscore live and podcast it's dash live Uh, And again, if you are interested at all in Civil Air Patrol, um, we do a lot of work with uh, cadets, uh, aerospace education, which is my area, and emergency services. If you're interested in learning more, uh, please visit gocivilairpatrol.com. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.